Full disclosure, I am a Shiba Inu holder. Do not hate me for it. I tell you, there are a lot of people on YouTube who are mad about that. They do not like Shiba. But I was just thinking, you know, if Bitcoin pranked gold, now Bitcoin is being pranked by Shib, and the Bitcoin people are not happy about it, which is too hilarious. As I told my good friend who I invest in crypto with, you should have a 1% to 2% allocation in meme coins. And uh, we weren't super early, so I'm not retiring or anything, but we're early enough to do a few Xs, just a few. So nothing special, frankly, in that market. Not financial advice, but let me tell you, it's a fun trade. It's a very fun trade. You want to feel younger? Buy some sheep. And so coming up, we have a very interesting show on decarbonization. It's from the Canadian Mining Journal's uh, Reimagine Mining Symposium, and they have a few experts. And what you learn here is that people are still figuring it out. It's very early. There is no universal protocol on how to deal with this. I mean, you get a lot of interesting theoretical information, and then you get some practical information. I mean, at the end, one of the panelists was just saying, you know, if you just switch from diesel, you're going to save 80% of your GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. So let's hope so. I, I hope it's that simple. I have a feeling it's not. So there are a lot of views out there. So basically, if you're a mining company, you don't really have a choice anymore. I mean, I don't think so. We traditionally have had people who have been quite skeptical, and even if you are, as a mining company, you know, your investors are still going to want you to do something about it. So, yeah, so you, you don't really have a choice. This isn't like a page on a website anymore. This is a core part of your uh, business strategy because your investors care, or a lot of them anyway. So probably going to want to listen to this if you are in the biz. And other than that, pretty interesting pullback, I would say, in the industrial metals nickel, copper, everything sort of pulling back a little bit, which I think is good and healthy. Uh, this inflation, you know, which some people are calling supply side inflation, uh, was getting a little wild. I have a friend who just came back from New York City and he was saying that prices, he hadn't been there for like a year. He said prices were up like 70%. Now that sounds extreme, but who knows? You know, all anecdotal, but he was saying like a glass of wine or a beer. He's saying like in the 15 to $18 range. I mean, it sounds crazy. So, I mean, take it. It's anecdotal, anecdotal data, as the scientists like to say. Other than that, uh, you know, bond yields coming down a bit. So we are ultimately seeing a break in the inflation narrative. And I think it's a welcome break really for everybody. That is happening. Other than that, uh, we have a event coming up at the Northern Miners Global Mining Symposium on rare earths. We have some world-class speakers there, including Clint Cox, who is widely regarded as one of, if not the leading expert on rare earths, as well as Mark Chalmers from Energy Fuels. He's the CEO. And Chris Grove, who's the CEO of Commerce. So that should be a Rock'em Sock'em panel. If you want to sign up for free, just go to events.northernminer.com. The event takes place on November 17th and 18th, and you can submit a question, and there is a very good chance that it will be asked. So I would get to that as for all our critical materials people that we cherish so much here. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at the northernminer and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts, 
and SoundCloud. Website, and with that, have an interview let's turn to the news. With Barrett Gold CEO, Mark Bristow, and he is interviewed by Henry Lazenby. And uh, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot in here. Let's just take a quick look. And it says here, after kicking off a period of top-tier gold industry consolidation, the company has been focusing on right-sizing the portfolio, focusing only on Tier 1 and Tier 2 assets. But getting back to value creation through the drill bit is something close to the former Rand Gold Resources executive's heart. In an activity he is increasingly able to accomplish, as most of Barrick's operating assets are currently performing well. So scrolling down a bit, Bristow has been very vocal about his commitment for Barrick to remain a Canadian company and has been talking about the company's commitment to secure a new top-tier asset in the mining-friendly jurisdiction since the Denver Gold Forum in September. So he continues to talk about Canada. So point one, right? And we've been talking about this on the podcast. Bristow likes Canada. You know, he's had a mine half-appropriated in P&G. Sounds like they have that back on track. Bristow has been around and he's worked in Africa a long time. So he likes Canada a lot. And so we have a quote here. We remain Canada's biggest gold mining company and Hemlo remains our only strategic operation here. I've been very outspoken about my commitment to grow our portfolio in Canada. We're very committed to doing that. But as you know, we're very focused on tier one assets. Since I coined the phrase tier one, and this is true. The definition varies quite a lot. A tier one asset is an asset that can produce 500,000 ounces of gold per year for more than 10 years at the lower half of the cost curve. It's so true. I thought it was so strange when everybody just started adopting Bristow's tier one speak. I guess when you say something that just feels right, everybody adopts it immediately. I found it really strange because uh, I, I remember Bristow was very clear. Maybe it's from us listening to these conference calls, you know, because that was it was very clear to me that he had created this term. And all of a sudden, everybody started using tier one asset and it was being used, as he puts it, very loosely, just as a great asset. This is a tier one asset, but he has a very specific definition. It can produce 500,000 ounces of gold a year for more than 10 years at the lower half of the cost curve. That... Technically speaking, according to Mark Bristow, is the definition of Tier 1. Bristow says implementing the Tier 1 strategy in Canada is a challenging task. Quote, in Canada, of course, we have a Tier 2 asset, Hemlo in Ontario, which we would also invest in despite the lack of the that 500 ounce per annum marketable inventory. Still, it gives us about 200 to 250,000 ounces for more than 10 years at the lower half of the cost curve. According to Bristow, Canadian gold deposits tend to be relatively small and always, quote, quite complex. Quote, when we did the Rand Gold merger, we looked at it because it had already been struggling. And again, you know, what gave it a lease of life was the open pit mine, which came to an end in 2020. And he's talking about Hemlo here. During 2019 and 2020, we reviewed the mine and we recognized that we had to go underground. We set out to recut the underground mining plan, bring in more modern mining long hole stoping, and try and bulk up the mining sections because it was always mined under a very old-fashioned mining style. We've got some work to do in Hemlo to continue to re-establish a new mining practice. The positive is that we have continued with our exploration efforts during this time, so we have identified more resources and significantly more potential along the extensions, 
both east and west of the mining complex in areas surrounding the mined-out area. We've got to get through the next 18 months to two years, manage the transition to a new mining philosophy, the sort of plan that we were expecting to implement in 2020, but couldn't because of COVID. And finally on Canada here, I've always built value for our stakeholders through discovery and development, so Canada still offers some exciting prospectivity because it is very miner friendly. And what we bring into Canada is a very clear commitment to explore. And just the last thing here, at the same time, we've been very interested and focused on some of the single asset and multi-asset mergers and acquisitions opportunities in Canada. But again, finding value in those types of opportunities at this upper end of the gold market is always difficult. So we are participating in those discussions as they come along. And if we find something, we will engage as we've done in the past. We're not scared of having a crack at getting an opportunity that will deliver value. So I wonder, it's, it's interesting how Bristow is giving this interview to the Northern Miner and he's really sort of orienting it towards Canada. Is Bristow telegraphing to Canadian miners, you know, if you got something you want to, you know, drop off on our doorstep or that you want to discuss, if you want to open a conversation with us, we are open for business. And continuing on, we have a battle for Millennium Lithium. Lithium Americas has just offered $400 million, which beats cattle or CATL's bid. And this is by Jackson Chen. Lithium Americas has submitted an unconditional offer to acquire all the outstanding shares of Millennial Lithium at $4.70 per share, payable in cash in Lithium America common shares for a total consideration of $400 million. Millennial Lithium has two non-producing lithium brine assets in northern Argentina, Pastos Grandes and Cachari East, with a combined 4.12 million tons of lithium carbonate equivalent in measured and indicated resources. Well, we just saw last week Rio Tinto, uh, one of their people was saying how they needed like 60 of their, I think they have a lithium mine in Serbia and that they needed 60 of those just to meet, you know, modest expectations of the EV market. So lithium continues to be white hot. And this trumps the offer from China's contemporary Amperex technology, CATL, the world's leading electric vehicle battery manufacturer. And they were the leading bidder for Millennial before, offering $3.85 per share or about $297 million US. So the new offer is $100 million more or 33% more. Now, with a superior offer presented by Lithium Americas, the Millennial Board has unanimously determined that this constitute a, quote, superior proposal in accordance with the terms of agreement between Millennial and CATL. As such, Millennial has notified CATL that the latter would have 10 business days to match the offer should it choose to do so. Interesting. You know, I just had a thought that crossed my mind on our previous story. You know what Barrick would love to have? is Ignico Eagle. It's at 2.1 million ounces per year, and then it just made that big acquisition recently in Canada. I wouldn't be surprised if Barrick wanted Ignico, just a thought in passing. And another story on lithium, Ganfang Lithium Land's fresh three-year supply deal with Tesla. It's by Cecilia Jamazmi. Ganfang Lithium, China's number one producer of the battery metal, has signed a new contract with Tesla to supply the electric vehicles maker with battery-grade lithium hydroxide products for three years starting in 2022. And you wonder, 
I guess it makes sense for Tesla to be in China if China is going to be running the EV battery market. The world's top lithium miner by market capitalization did not provide details on price or volumes agreed in the deal, but said that information would be determined by Tesla's purchase orders. Based on the EV maker's disclosed plans, the transactions would be significant. Tesla expects to start initial operations at two new factories at the end of 2021. It also said it would like to ramp up production at its Gigafactory Berlin and Giga Texas facilities in 2022. Market rumors suggest that Tesla may finally start producing next year vehicles such as the Cybertruck and the Semi. Both of these prototypes use the Hype 4680 battery, which promises more range for less cost. And a couple of copper stories out of Chile. We have a protest. Protests force Peru's largest copper mine to halt operations. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. Operations at Peru's Antamina Copper and Zinc Mine, jointly owned by Glencore and Tech Resources and Mitsubishi, were suspended on October 31st due to an ongoing roadblock set up by local residents who believe the mine has not lived up to its commitments to support local communities. And Antamina put out a statement, We don't want to wait until something happens that puts at risk the physical integrity of anybody. We think it is necessary for the government and its authorities to act to re-establish order. Protesters are demanding compensation for the use of their land to transport the ore Antamina produces. The demonstration is the latest in a string of protests against mining companies that have broken out since President Pedro Castillo took office in July. And so, interesting. And also we have another story. Chile's copper output sinks to seven-month low. So, just as copper supplies are tightening and the demand for copper is increasing, Chile is having problems getting out the same amount of copper also by Cecilia Jamasmi, copper production in Chile, the world's top copper producer, registered in September its worst month for copper since February on the back of labor disruptions and falling ore grades at the country's aging mines. The country's output dropped 6.9% year-on-year in September to 451,128 tons and 3.4% from August, according to government statistics agency INE. Soaring copper prices this year have handed unions in Chile more leverage than in the recent past, ratcheting up tensions in some labor negotiations, including an almost one-month strike at Cadelco's Andina mine near capital Santiago. The newly released figures take Chile's lost copper production to the end of September to 4.2 million tons, a 1.9% drop when compared to the nation's total output in 2020. That is significant. And another little Just at the bottom of the article, very interesting little tidbit. What happened to the London Metal Exchange's copper inventories earlier this month illustrates how tight the market has become. The LME was recently caught off guard by a sudden emptying of available copper in its warehouses, which drove inventory levels to their lowest since 1974. Over the past two months, freely available inventories have shrunk by more than 90% in LME-monitored warehouses as orders surged. Pretty intense when you're running out of metal at the LME. And finally, relating to our feature content, Anglo-American to have indirect emissions by 2040. And also by Cecilia Jamasmi, Anglo-American aims to have its indirect greenhouse gases, known as scope 3 emissions, by 2040, while it continues to boost the use of renewable energy across its operations, particularly in South America. And as you hear from the feature content, it's almost like they don't even know 
a lot of these companies how they can actually do this, but they're sort of making the commitments anyway. The company vowed two years ago to meet power requirements of its copper operations in Chile with renewables by 2021. It also said it expected to have its iron ore and nickel operations in Brazil, as well as its copper mine in Peru, relying solely on green power by 2022. Now, that's impressive. It now expects to draw 56% of grid electricity supply from renewables by 2023. That compares to 2020 levels, when just over a third of the electricity the company used globally was from renewable sources. And we have a quote from CEO Mark Kutafani. Quote, through innovative technologies and practices, we can be more targeted in accessing those metals and minerals, use less water and energy, and crucially, generate fewer GHG emissions. Anglo-American has also begun replacing its diesel-powered mine trucks with hydrogen fuel cell and battery trucks. So this also comes up in the feature content. Haul trucks contribute up to 80% of diesel emissions at the company's mines, it said. And they're also exiting coal. I'll let you read the whole thing on northernminer.com. Those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. To metal prices, the 10-year bond, for context, is trading at 1.552%. That is 0.01% lower than last week. And turning to our metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on November 2nd, gold is trading at $1,795.56 per ounce. That is $7 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $24.05 per ounce. That is 29 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading higher at $1,060.61 per ounce. That is $7 higher. Palladium is trading at $2,052.43 per ounce. That is also $6 higher than last week. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.52 per pound. That's four cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.22 per pound. That is 15 cents lower than last week. Lead is a penny higher at $1.11. Nickel is at $8.84 per pound. That is 47 cents lower than last week. Tin is at $17.58 per pound. That is nine cents lower than last week. Cobalt is at $25.52 per pound. That is seven cents higher. And zinc is six cents lower at $1.57 per pound. So you might call it a small respite from, you know, turbocharging industrial metal prices, consolidation, a break. The prices in these metals have stopped going up and have come down a little bit this week. And those are your metal prices and coming up we have the canadian mining journals reimagine mining symposium featuring the decarbonization panel countdown to net zero and alicia introduces everybody so i will let her get to it i hope you enjoy it and i will see you on the other side
pleasure to introduce the panelists for this session. Starting with Luke Mahoney is the head of technology and innovation for Valet Base Metals. This role includes leading the low carbon agenda for base metals. Emily Thorne Corthe is the founder and CEO of Thorne Associates, a decarbonization and energy management consulting firm specializing in mining and metals. Mark Fellows is a co-founder and director of commercial at SCARN Associates, a mineral economics consultancy focused on energy and carbon. Brian Huff is vice president technology and product line for Sandvik's BHEV business unit. And Martin Van Koppen is VP product management with McLean Engineering. Thank you all for being here today. I think it's going to be a really great discussion having spoken with you all before. As Robert mentioned in his introduction, uh, decarbonization has become a priority in the mining sector very, very quickly. All of the major mining companies have committed to net zero, scope one and two emissions by 2050. And just last week, we saw the ICMM, International Council on Metals and Mining, release a statement to that effect on behalf of its members. So I want to start by getting a sense from all of you of how realistic that target is of net zero by 2050 and whether companies should actually be aiming higher. Luke, can we start with you since Valet is an ICMM member? Thanks, Alicia. No, I, I think this is, this is the question. For me, if you ask, can we achieve the 2050? I think we, we can, but we don't know how. And I think it's that vulnerability of we don't know how, but we need to work together to try and leverage and collaborate to, to achieve that. And so naturally what we've done, we've announced the 2050 net zero, but we've also got the interim 2030. Let's reduce by 33% because it's even important for us to check ourselves to how we tracking against that. It's great to have a 2050, but we won't know until 2045 until how we're going. But I think that 2030 interim is quite a key goal, which a lot of us have, have made also. And so if, if, if I reflect on the 2030, which normally is a 33% reduction of absolute emissions. And, and what that means is business as usual will more than likely increase as grades go down and new operations go in. And so that 33% becomes a 40 or 50% when, when you start to really break it down. And so is it achievable? Yeah, I, I think Half of our initiatives to reach that 2030 goal are NPV positive. They make sense. It's efficiency. It's being more efficient in how you use your electrical equipment. It's being more efficient from a process. And so there's a, there's a lot of just do it. Let's get on with it and, and it makes sense. Then you probably start to get to a quarter where you need the incentive of a carbon price to really, okay, let's start to kick this off. We're going to need a little bit of help because it's not there yet. And then the further you sort of go on a, on, on, let's call it a marginal abatement curve, this is where, yeah, this is technology that big capital investment, high operating costs, and it really needs a change in technology to really see these accelerate. So the technology is there. I think we've got to focus on reducing our scope one and two, and, and I know we'll hopefully talk about that later, but it is there and that's where we need to prioritize. And then naturally, I think the remaining technology to reduce to a net zero will evolve the carbon capture and other, other type methods, but we need to accelerate or mature those, but at the same time, focus on reducing the scope one and two, uh, especially in the interim, have those interim goals. If I can just yeah, add Luke, uh, Alicia, to, um, to what Luke was saying, uh, great comments, uh, Luke, in terms of targets, uh, if you, the audience, haven't heard of the science-based 
targets initiative, I think that's an excellent place to start. They, they go by SBTI. So again, I'll say the science-based targets initiative and they have some great uh, guidance. They actually, the, the ambitions keep getting uh, bolder though. So you do have to keep track um, because, uh, you know, initially to be a science-based target aligned, you could be just, you know, two degrees Celsius sort of maximum global warming of two. Then it was well below two, which is approximately 1.5 seven degrees Celsius. And now just this summer in July, they've announced to be SBTI aligned. Uh, you now need to uh, get behind a 1.5 degrees Celsius. Um, that is just on the scope one and two for now. So I think uh, that's a great uh, resource and, and place to start. And, um, and to answer your question, Alicia, about, you know, should companies be more ambitious? I think if they can at least, you know, keep up with the SBTI, which, again, very rapidly keeps getting more ambitious, that's already very challenging for mining companies. And if you can do that, I think you're, you're doing really well. And in terms of achievable, I think it's great, Luke, how, as you said, that vulnerability, it is really difficult to predict how to exactly get to 2050. But again, if we go back to the SBTI guidelines, to have an SBTI aligned target, it actually has to be between five and 15 years out in the future. So it cannot be 2050 right now to be an SBTI aligned target. So that's why most companies are at 2030 right now. And so getting out to 2030, I think that's generally a, a 42 or so percent uh, decrease from your from your base year to align with the 1.5 degrees Celsius. And so to get there, that's generally possible on a corporate level. And I think, again, these targets on a corporate level, so every site does not need to do that. So I think mining companies can really strategically look at all of their assets and choose, you know, which one are, are easier to decarbonize. And then unfortunately, you know, which ones eventually to potentially divest from, right? Great point. Any other perspectives on, on this question about how ambitious uh, these targets are? I was just going to add that, you know, uh, you know, a lot of pressure gets put on the mining companies to do this, but it's, it's really a, a group effort, right? You know, all of the suppliers and the and energy generation companies, everyone's really involved. I mean, scope two is involved with the supply of energy. Where you get that energy is a dramatic impact on the amount of GHG emissions involved in that. There's very few jurisdictions that are really fully renewable. And so there's a lot of work, I think, going there. And, you know, we see ourselves as, uh, as one of these enablers, right? We're, we're enabling you to use these renewable energies as a fuel for the operations that traditionally wouldn't be. And that's, that's kind of where, what Sandvik's doing to try to make this happen. Mark, please go ahead. You were going to say something. What I was going to say is I also have a real faith that the industry will achieve achieve the goals, but right now it's impossible to say exactly how it's going to be achieved. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would point out is there's going to be some huge structural impediments in that there's going to be a logjam on several fronts. And I, I guess some of my fellow panelists might, you know, I'd be really interested to say, hear, hear what they have to say in that it's easy to envisage how the equipment manufacturers order books are going to get pretty blocked out by the major mining companies as low carbon mobile equipment becomes available. So that it's, you know, obviously there's going to be a hell of a log jam when it comes to sourcing that equipment. And there's also going to be some real issues with the viability of a whole bunch of mining operations that simply don't have the mine life or the reserve quality to justify reinvestment in a decarbonized mining fleet. And there's also loads of implications for mines, which are just simply physically not configured well for things like trolley assist. There's going to be huge infrastructure impediments in terms of building out electricity grid capacity to mine sites where they want to take on 
extra grid supply to pump into that electrified mobile equipment. And I, I think those things are going to have a massive impact on the, the strategic position of various players within the industry. And it is going to drive M&A. It's going to drive financing. It's going to drive offtake. It's already doing those things. And this is why our thesis for the last couple of years has been that the whole energy transition is going to be the big strategic driver of the mining sector for the next couple of decades. And we don't know how it's going to pan out, but it's really going to be interesting. Martin, do you have anything to add? No, I, I think it's interesting too to look at it from a different perspective that some of the maybe more junior companies are already committing to uh, a net carbon product in the pretty near future. And, and I think the interesting thing is that how that works out on the capital market where they're all of a sudden able to attract investors that are not typically drawn to mining, which is a, an opportunity in itself. The other thing that I was thinking as others were, were talking is that whether companies commit to be fully carbon neutral by 2030, like some have, or have an interim target that will get them to the path of net neutrality, uh, equipment that you buy today, you know, you get next year, and then sometimes that equipment lasts for 10 years. So that decision-making, if that's the, the path towards neutrality, it'd be interesting to see how that's going to um, infiltrate current-day decision-making, not just at the top, but uh, in all levels in between the top and the actual machine operator, right? So those those are some of the things that uh, that, that were running through my head as, as we were kind of discussing these things. And, and then finally, I think there's some low-hanging fruit. Uh, I would say that mobile equipment in underground mining is by and large getting there to be zero emissions, whereas open pit equipment or, for example, processes like steel making, that might be a little further out. So I think on how ambitious companies need to be, it really depends on the profile of, of what their, where their carbon emissions are. Like I said, I, I would imagine that using carbon for, for steel making to eliminate that part is definitely very capital intensive and, and still pretty far out there from what I understand. And then maybe one thing, just, just on something Mark mentioned, 2050, a lot of the mines that are operating today aren't going to be there. And the ones that are, are the, usually the long life, low cost, and they can afford to decarbonize one way where it's about the project managers and the innovative thinking on how do we design the mine of the future? And, and normally project managers are, are relatively risk adverse uh, in terms of how they go through their process. And it's how you really enable the, the, the thinking and look at the upside potential and, and really put that in the project framing as you start to mature these projects. Because as I said, 2050, it's, it's going to be a whole different portfolio of mines than what we have today. So, sorry, one more thing to add in discussing projects, it's really important from a strategic perspective when you're setting your targets to have a climate lens on any investments investments in terms of acquisitions um, or organic growth expansions that you have because we won't go into it in detail in this panel uh, because it's too technical, but there is a very different treatment in the targets, again, if you're going to be SBT aligned of a acquisition of a mine versus an expansion of an existing mine, and they're treated completely different, and it dramatically affects your targets and how you can achieve them. So if you're not aware of that, um, again, that's a really, really important point when you're developing these carbon robots and strategically when you're looking uh, to the future to 2050 as to which, you know, your growth. Great. Thank you. Let's talk about the how. We've established that mining is on the road to net zero, but what does a typical roadmap to net zero look like? 
uh, where are miners starting their efforts and what are going to be the most difficult places to cut emissions? Um, Emily, can we start with you here? Sure, yes. I uh, caught the tail end of, of Tony from Kirkland Lake Gold Beach, and uh, he did a good job as a CEO of, uh, of talking about uh, sort of roadmaps. And actually, it reminds me of we went to the Energy and Mines conference like years and years ago, and they had five-minute TED Talks from CEOs. And at that point, no one had a clue, like none of the CEOs knew really much about decarbonization. So it's really heartening these days to, uh, you know, see the CEOs and chair of the board uh, really get involved in this. So in terms of a roadmap for decarbonization, uh, again, Tony is right. You need to understand basically where you are today. So your carbon footprint or in a GHG accounting speak, that would be called your, your greenhouse gas inventory. And you have to have it right, by the way, because most mining companies who have not had a third-party independent verification uh, have some pretty uh, significant, I guess, aspects that need to be uh, corrected. So I would highly um, encourage you if you haven't had that sort of independently verified, there's some big things that can be uh, make some big changes. Uh, the second step after you've uh, verified your greenhouse gas inventory would be to do a business as usual projection. And that might sound simple, but there's quite a few nuances with respect to, again, your growth uh, strategy. And um, that when you're trying to go out to 2050 or even 2030, many of your minds or some of them, you know, their life of mine might end before 2030. So how do you account for that? And then, of course, the target setting. And then in terms of specific technologies for your roadmap, uh, usually you go on a site-by-site -site basis to look at the greenhouse gas abatement um, technologies. So starting with renewable electricity is really the enabler, right? So the number one enabler is getting somehow getting renewable electricity. And if that's not possible, that's going to make it a lot more challenging. So maybe again, because your targets are corporate, try and start with the sites that have a easy and not too costly ability to go 100% or close to that renewable. Uh, second, after the renewable electricity, be to electrify transportation. So, of course, battery electric has already been talked about. We have like two BEV uh, manufacturers on the panel and fully agree that's a really important part. But another part that's simpler that's maybe not talked about is conveyors. Simple conveyors, cheap conveyors, they have very proven technology. When you can replace trucks with conveyors, that's a really cost-effective option that's available now today. So don't forget that as well. There's also more sophisticated conveyor technologies like uh, RopeCon and RailVair and that kind of thing. And then, you know, if those are not available, uh, biodiesel, usually there's a maximum of 20%, but um, that could be a transition or renewable diesel, you can get to 100%, but availability is usually an issue. And then in cold climates, like most of Canada, you know, you need to ensure you have no carbon heating of uh, underground ventilation and camps. So looking at, you know, at least heat recovery as a start or those are, and some, I guess to answer your last question about what's the most difficult, uh, haven't seen really too many great ready to use solutions without explosives. So explosives right now are a small portion of emissions. They don't get talked about, but as we decarbonize the rest, eventually those will be probably some of the last, maybe mechanical cutting will be there by then, but uh, that's something that's not being talked about right now. Luke, can you tell us a little bit about Valet's roadmap? To, to net zero? From the work that we did, where we, we, we probably spent the last 18 months to really understand where the emissions come from. And 
we, we came up with about 500 initiatives and, and we've consolidated that down to about 200 to consolidate down to 100, et cetera. And so if you start to have a look at that, the common themes, uh, there, there's four themes. I think one is the energy efficiency fuel switching and, and process optimization. There's a lot of opportunities. And I think from a, from a Vale point of view, we, we, we do the mining, but we do a lot of the processing also. And so a lot of our emissions are from the processing side. And so be more efficient in what you do, um, and, and you'll see that. The next one is the low carbon power, where you don't have a clean grid, look to implement. And, and obviously, these are much more longer term in investments and decisions, but really target that low carbon power. Second, for, and then the next for us is heat recovery. Uh, I think to the point, we currently use a lot of fossil fuels to generate heat as part of the process, but then we lose a lot of that heat through slag and through other methodology. And so how do we start to capture that heat and reuse that heat, which then minimizes the use of introducing more fossil fuels or other fuels? And then probably the hardest is back to the fuel switching. I, I think there are some quick opportunities there, but but then that's when you start to get on the right-hand side of the, the abatement curve where the technology is not there. I think for large trucks, electrification and other electrification of, of furnaces, it, it's very expensive from a technology. It's not as efficient compared to, to I suppose, the, the current fossil fuels. And so how do you find a transition? Maybe, maybe natural gas is a transition, biomass or a biocarbon, but then you've got the supply issues. That is a good way before electrification. And so... The four things for us is efficiency, low carbon power, heat recovery, and fuel switching. Yeah, I can add sort of my perspective from when I, from before when I joined McLean when I was with Newmont and Gold Corp is that aside from the technology roadmap, just getting a general awareness, carbon emissions, and understanding where your current emissions are and how to forecast that forward, making sure that that starts to make its way into the business planning process as you're working out different scenarios that you're not just looking at the ounces of gold or you know the pounds of nickel or uh, whatever you're producing, but that you have carbon emissions as one of the, the outputs that you can then evaluate against other scenarios. And that sounds very simple, uh, but it does require that you know where your carbon emissions come from and how you can, to some degree, forecast them. So that goes back to some of the baseline work that uh, Emily uh, mentioned before. But I, I think just that awareness and, and getting that on the radar is uh, equally important. Um, can I ask Brian, we, we heard from Sandvik earlier today, we heard a presentation about electric equipment and it sounded like a real no brainer in terms of efficiency, productivity, and so many other metrics. Um, can you tell us, shed some light on how quickly companies are looking to replace their diesel fleets? and why they may not be going any faster than they are. I think, uh, as was mentioned earlier, you know, supply is a, is a challenge. You know, this is still new and there's a, there's a lot of interest, but there's there's definitely a really significant commitment from multiple, and as was mentioned earlier too, it's the, it's the big mining houses that are really uh, pushing this at the leading edge of adopting the technology. And I think to what Emily and Luke both said, you know, that that is, I think, the right step in the roadmap. I, I, I might say that you actually might want to put things in a different order, go electrification first, and then work on where the source is, because you can make some dramatic gains just from the electrification aspect itself. You know, one thing that, uh, you know, kind of putting all this together, right, that, as Luke mentioned, and, and Emily, in, in cold climates, you have to heat the air going into your mine. If you can get rid of your uh, large number of diesel particulates underground, you can decrease your ventilation flow, right? Less ventilation flow requires less heating. 
So it's a compounding benefit on the electrical energy usage. We've had customers that actually reduced their uh, electricity consumption by converting to electric drive trucks because of that heating cost itself. So it, it's kind of a, a little bit counterintuitive that you're now powering your fleet by electric power, but consuming less net electricity for your mine site overall. It doesn't seem obvious, but it's true, especially for cold climate mines. That step can be taken even before you start looking at renewables. Then there's another potential value in, in battery electric technology, and, and especially with swapping technology, and there's you know, a few OEMs doing it that way. That battery can have some secondary uses. You can use it for buffering renewables. You can use it for frequency regulation or peak shading to really create electric, mine electric infrastructure that's, you know, that's better capable of adopting renewables and, and getting toward that full net zero. Great, thank you. We had a little bit of data that we analyzed from one of the customers, and that was in a, in a jurisdiction with clean energy. But if you were to do the thought exercise of working out what it would be if they you know, grab the energy from dirty diesel generation and compare that to the amount of diesel that they would have burnt on the truck had it been a normal diesel uh, operating, it, it would still three times cleaner to get the power 40 BV truck from a diesel generator rather than running the diesel engine. And part of that is regeneration. It's uh, just inherent efficiencies within the system. So even if your power is super dirty and you don't have any ventilation savings, you can still cut back on your emissions significantly. One more number to that that you know, is just in, in like the U.S., the U.S. average uh, is, is not very clean, to be honest. Uh, but you, we see uh, just a diesel to battery electric truck conversion is going to save about 40% in GHG. In Canada, it's more like... 88%. And in Quebec, it's 99.9%, you know, and that's just from the diesel fleet. And, and for like most average mines, your, your fuel is roughly 50% of your greenhouse gas emissions just for your, your trucks and loaders. Uh, so just taking that first step actually will get you to your 2030 goals. Um, and if you don't mind me chipping in on this, yeah. this is one of the interesting uh, differentiators we see in our work when we aggregate uh, asset level GHG numbers across the industry by country when we add those numbers up look at the country totals the the countries with coal-fired power really stick out um and it then becomes really difficult to see how places like say south africa or mongolia or kazakhstan are really gonna make an impact on their emissions until they address that particularly when you in say south africa you have a whole load of really deep underground mines with very high ventilation and cooling requirements already using an awful lot of electricity. So coming back to the previous question, although reduction in scope two is an obvious easy win in some cases, I think in other parts of the world, it's gonna be a lot more difficult. And then obviously when you get beyond that, you're getting into all the more, even more difficult scope one stuff that we've just been discussing. I'm gonna stay with you for the next question, Mark. I wanted to talk a little bit about reporting and measuring uh, of emissions, how close are we to standardization of measuring and reporting on scope one and two? And also, if you can talk a little bit about what's involved with measuring scope three emissions. So I thought Emily's point earlier about um, when you dig into companies reported emissions, you find many irregularities is exactly tallies with our experience. And we have many conversations with mining companies as potential clients when we initiate the conversation by querying numbers and say, where did you get that particular emission number from? 
Um, and did you realize there's actually a more useful, say, grid emission factor for that locality or, you know, what uh, emission assumption per litre of diesel are you actually using here? Or did you accidentally add an, a, an additional zero to something? And it's, it's really quite common. And I think it's quite indicative of the fact that everybody's on a, a very steep learning curve with regards to emissions numbers. From our point of view, we have our own methodology, which is entirely based really on the greenhouse gas protocol scope one, scope two, scope three. But what we found really useful is to impose a system boundary on, on those that reflects the mining industry uh, or a typical mining process stream. So when we think about scope one or two, it's pretty easy. Obviously you're looking at whatever's burnt or consumed at the mine site, but the scope three stuff that we think is most important or most useful in, 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 in the current instance is to make sure that you you're quantifying the emissions between the mine and the downstream processing in terms of the freight. So we look at the concentrate freight for the base metal mines from the, the mine gate to the smelter refinery. And we also quantify smelting and refining emissions. So we go through the, the smelters and refineries and quantify what their emissions are. And so our real focus goes up to the refinery gate, which to us and many of our clients seems to make a lot of sense because we all tend to think in terms of the minor scope of influence, if you like, being from rock in the ground through to refined metal. We don't go beyond that currently, but we do encourage our clients to um, look at our methodology and um, generally the feedback we get on it is very good. It, it, it seems to be that we're covering most of the stuff they're interested in. Where it gets way more difficult, obviously, is when you get into particularly steel and coal, where you've got all of that scope three further down the steel steel chain which we don't currently cover although we've got a plan in place to start covering it and this is where a lot of the mining companies themselves i think are and and luke i'd be interested to hear your input on this as a an iron ore producer you, you know the the mining companies themselves are being held to account by investors for their scope three emissions down into the steel making chain and there's a lot of quite complicated stuff going on there in terms of is the right iron ore product or bet coal product going into the most appropriate steel making process and to what extent is the miner responsible for that so there's a whole bunch of stuff there that i've just unpacked a little bit but i'll throw it over to the rest of the panel to uh, correct me or elaborate on stuff yeah luke maybe you can start yeah. off yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And we've been tracking scope one and scope two for some time. Like, and you start to have a look. And when we went on this journey, ah, oh, yeah, we've got the numbers, but it was from the lens of an accounting. We have it, okay. But what decisions can you make from that information? Okay, natural gas comes to the mine, but does it go to the plan or does it go to the mine? We don't know. Or, okay, how are we validating some of this work for decision making process? So, we spent the last. 18 months really reviewing the entire process redoing the mass balance of the product balance so we could know where the material was or the emissions were going to en en enable decisions to be made and so we needed to change that and so i think scope one and two what was mentioned with the principles on the ghg protocols and you, you got to remember it's not a checklist of hey you must do that because we don't want a checklist yet we're not ready for a checklist but the principles of transparency materiality consistency it, it so holds true and and if the intention is to really move forward 
in that way, which Emily mentioned, the science-based targets really pushes, well, it mandates that that's what needs to be done. For me, I think that's where we need to really evolve, I think from a scope one and two. And I think we are getting there, we, we are understanding, but, but we don't wanna keep changing also because we wanna know, have we made a change because of what we've physically done to reduce emissions, not because of the factor that we've done and say, hey, we're, we're good. And so this is where you start hearing the terms greenwashing in, in some respect. But then you get to the scope three, and I think that, that that's an interesting one where much more immature. I think if you think upstream, which are the suppliers, you can have a lot more influence, I, I think, from that point of view. But at the same thing, the suppliers, uh, like, like Brian and Martin, what is the footprint of that machine that comes to site? The steel and everything, when, when it comes, what is that? Well, one, is it material and how are we calculating that? And so we, we went through a whole exercise to understand the scope three, and what we did, we, we included a pre-assurance process by, by one of the big four accounting firms to say, hey, if we were to do that, can you have a look based on those fundamentals? Does that make sense? And where, where do we need to go? Because it's not gonna be perfect, but it's how do we really move there? And so I think upstream is, is one thing, which I think the, the mining companies can really influence and, and demand, just like downstream. If you think of the customers, especially for a nickel and copper producer, a lot of it is for the EV market. and a lot of questions are being asked of us weekly. What is your footprint, both scope three upstream and scope one and two? And so, so, so for us, it's, it's, it, we've now got that visibility. We've now got the processes. We're now talking about carbon, just like we are in terms of costs and safety and production. And, and for me, it's, it's that maturity and that evolution on, we will get better, but at the same time, we don't sort of want to create something that's precise, but not accurate. And I think that's just, something we've got to be careful of as an industry. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but uh, I wish we could, we had a little bit more time to, um, to keep this going, but I thank you all so much for joining us today. Countdown to net zero begins right here on the Northern Miner podcast, one of a kind content for the mining industry. And as you can see, there are many different approaches that people are taking to this. And the rules are still being written here in 2021. So I hope you learned a lot from our panelists. If you want to help out the podcast, you can leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory and share it with your friends online. And don't forget about that Rare Earths panel that is coming up at our next Global Mining Symposium in just a couple of weeks. Until next week. Take care.